Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. It's a great way to start the new year, isn't it? Open your Bibles to 1 John. If you don't know where it is, go to Revelation and take a left. A couple of blocks, you'll find it. I want you to know that my introduction is a little longer today than normal. So those of you who are sitting there waiting to fill in the blanks, and are worried that I'm not going to get there. I'm going to get there. But I want to tell you a lot about what's going on here <clears throat> so you'll understand with me why John is writing this letter. I don't know if you're familiar with the television show on the History Channel called Pawn Stars. <clears throat> if you haven't seen it, it's a place in Las Vegas. There's a pawn shop there. There's some characters like Rick and Chumley and some of those people. And people are all the time bringing in items from Confederate uniforms or Civil War uniforms to World War II memorabilia to you name it. They bring it in. And I also know that those guys could not possibly know everything about everything they say on that show. So the History Channel obviously is using that as a teaching tool. But it's interesting what people bring in because they think if I bring in something, it might be worth a lot of money. And usually, if it's something that they don't know anything about, Rick or Chumley or whoever else is in there, they they will call in an expert to come in and appraise that uh, whatever it is they brought in. For example, one time a man brought in a violin, and the violin had Stradivarius inside of it. Now, a Stradivarius violin is very rare today, very rare, worth millions of dollars. This man had bought a piece of property, had a house and a barn on it. As he was going through the barn, he found a trunk, and inside that trunk was this violin, and he brought it in thinking it was going to be worth millions. Well, Rick calls in an expert to come in and look at this violin and appraise it. Unfortunately, the expert says this is not an Uh, authentic Stradivarius, but it's an an imitation that was made in the early 1900s, and it's worth about five or six hundred dollars. But what that expert said, I think is worth repeating. He looked at the owner of that violin, and he said, just because something has a label doesn't mean it's real. And folks, we live in a society where there's so much fake around us. You see advertisements in all of these periodicals in the newspaper or magazines that, that shows this glamorous-looking piece of jewelry. It looks like a diamond, but it will have on there something. There's always a, a word or two before that diamond, which basically says this isn't real. And then the word faux, F-A-U-X, I think is how you spell it. Faux everything. That's just a nice way of saying it's fake. Faux leather, faux diamonds. Uh, They make chairs that look like leather, but they're not leather. 
And so we're surrounded by things that are not authentic, even though we're led to believe that they are. And there are many labels in religion today. Who's right? Is it a certain philosophy? Is it a certain denomination? Is it a certain lifestyle or a certain belief? I got amused at reading about a lady who was a Baptist, and we are a Southern Baptist church because of the way we do missions. We're an autonomous church, but autonomous means nobody tells us what to do except the Lord and this congregation in that order. <clears throat> Hopefully. <laughs> but she, she was... Uh, she was such a staunch Baptist. She said, I know that the Lord was a Baptist, is a Baptist. And, and they said, well, what? They asked her, what if the Lord returns and you ask him, are you a Baptist? And he says, no. What are you going to say? She said, I'm not going to say anything because I know it's not the Lord. <laughs> and then you may be like a little boy who said, it doesn't really matter what abomination you belong to instead of denomination. The message of 1 John says that just because someone wears the label Christian doesn't mean they are the real thing. How do you know what real Christianity is? About the only difference in the first century when this was written and the 21st century is that the names have changed. At the time that John wrote 1 John, it was about 90 AD. Now think about this. That's 30 years after Nero had done all the persecuting of Christians. That's 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And at this point in political history, it's a pretty calm time. Not a lot of persecution going on. Because Domitian comes in, he's the, actually the emperor, but he doesn't start persecuting Christians until about 95 or 96 AD. So right now, it's a pretty peaceful time. And there are second and third and fourth generation Christians in the church. John is almost 100 years old. He's in his 90s. He's probably the last living eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And everyone else is now a second or third generation Christian. And they did not see Jesus. They did not see other than John. They didn't know anybody who personally followed Christ while he was still on the earth. And so it would be natural for some of the fire and excitement in the second and third generations to sort of die down a little bit. Now, I'm not going to take a survey in here, but let me explain to you what I'm talking about. The chances are many of you in this room are second, third, or fourth generation Christians. What I mean by that is you were not the person in your family that didn't know anything about the Lord, didn't know anything about Jesus, and you heard the gospel preached somewhere and you responded and you were the first person in your family to follow Jesus there was probably a pretty radical transformation in your life. Lifestyle change, something different. You, you understand what I'm saying? <clears throat> Those of us like me who grew up in a Christian home, my grandparents were Christians. My parents are Christians. 
Now, I followed the Lord at a young age because I grew up in it. It doesn't mean that my salvation is any less supernatural than somebody who came out of a life without God to Christ, but I grew up in the church, and I grew up around the Bible, and I grew up around Christian people, and I came to know Jesus, and I hope you understand when I say, but my, my um, salvation transformation probably was not as radical a change as somebody who had never known it before and come to know Jesus. Y'all understand what I'm saying? This is the kind of people we're talking to. It wasn't as exciting. They had come to know Christ, but they were still being bombarded by the paganism around them. In Ephesus, where this was written, sexuality was, or sexual immorality, I should say, was the norm. Ephesus was the home of the famous temple of the moon goddess called by the Romans Diana and the Greeks Artemis. The temple was staffed by eunuch priests called Megabesi. They conducted immoral rites with prostitutes or priestesses as they were called. It was so bad that Heraclitus, the first century Greek scholar and native of Ephesus, was called the weeping philosopher. And they asked him why he never smiled. And he said, it's because I live in a city where most of the citizens were fit only to be drowned. He said the morals of the temple of Diana were easily the most, which was easily the most popular place in town, were worse than the morals of beasts. But that wasn't the only problem. Ephesus was also an, a city of asylum. Criminals could flee there for safety. If you got to Ephesus, you didn't have to worry about being prosecuted. Sanctuary city, I guess you'd call it. And in addition to that, there was a thriving idol business, all kinds of charms and idols. And if you read in Acts chapter 19, Paul confronted some of this and about uh, the silversmith and all the idols, and it started a riot because it was going to cut into their business if people started following Jesus and didn't buy these little idols. So for the Christian to go near the temple of Diana or Artemis was to be tempted by prostitutes. You could be accosted by criminals. You could be offered the latest pagan charms and all other kinds of magical fetishes at cut-rate prices. And why should John worry about that? Well, first of all, People are curious. And a lot of these people, these had been saved out of pagan backgrounds, and maybe they felt a pull to go back to the old way of life. And John may have remembered when Jesus said, it's recorded in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Paul also warned the readers about this problem. He wrote the leaders of the church at Ephesus and said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, the false teachers had come in, and they were beginning a new way of thought that is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is still prevalent today. Now, Gnosticism taught basically this, 
that, that matter, all matter is evil. Anything spiritual is good. Your body is made of matter. Therefore, it's evil. You can do anything you want to with it, but your spirit is good. And so you take care of your spirit. And basically what you do is you increase the knowledge for your spirit. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but they would basically say, you could do anything you wanted to do. And so they were coming into the church and they were weakening the morals of Christians and the ethics of Christians. But they were also spreading a very serious error about Jesus. And here's what I want you to really listen to, all of it actually, but there was a, a simple and a subtle approach when it came to Jesus with the Gnostics. The simple approach was, since matter is evil, that Jesus never really had a human body. He looked like he did. He was more than a ghost, what you would appear. But if you walked beside Jesus, he would not leave footprints in the sand. And they taught that Jesus never did really have a human body. Now, we just celebrated the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us and became one of us. So that was the simple approach. It was called docetism. But the subtle approach was even more dangerous. And it was started by a man by the name of Serenthus, who was the arch enemy of John, who wrote 1 John. Now, Serenthus said this, that Jesus was born a natural man, just like you and I are born. But he was especially obedient to God. And at his baptism, the Christ came down on him as a dove. And after his baptism... Jesus preached with power and told the listeners new and unheard knowledge concerning the Father in heaven. And just before the crucifixion, the Christ left Jesus and the human Jesus went through the suffering and the death. At least he did acknowledge the resurrection, said he rose again while the divine Christ remained removed from all suffering. So they denied that Jesus was the God-man, the only mediator between God and man. Now, the Gnostics also said that the way to salvation is through knowledge. Gnosticism is basically the word, uh, um, gnosis is the word for knowledge, Gnostics. The way you got this knowledge, there was one of two ways that you got this knowledge. One was by experience. You had to have experiences to gain more knowledge to be saved. Now, there were two groups of those. There was one group that you wouldn't join. They were called the ascetics, asceticism, which basically means flesh fasting. If your body has that desire, you say no to it. They didn't marry, they ate certain foods, they had strict rules they followed, and guess what? That was not the fastest growing group on earth because people didn't want to join that. That's no fun in that. But the other extreme or other part of gaining the knowledge was what we might call flesh feasting was hedonism, which meant that since your body's evil, you can do anything you want to with it. 
It doesn't matter. You can be as immoral. You can be completely unrestrained. They said, after all, if your body is evil and the spirit is good, it doesn't matter. Let the good times roll. Another thing about the Gnostics is that they believed a way to salvation was through special knowledge or initiations, kind of secretive. And a lot of the Gnostics were, had high IQs and they were more bent on philosophical and theological debates and all. And then some of them even said that you have to to go through special rites and passage to get there. And it was sort of a secret society. And so what happened now in this church, you've got the incarnation of Jesus, that is becoming flesh, is gone. You have the ethics and morals that used to distinguish Christians from the pagans. They're being washed away or watered down. And you have the Christian fellowship of believers that's being destroyed because the Gnostics thought they had it and you poor souls over here didn't. So you've got this division of fellowship in the church and John was probably the last living soul that had been with Jesus on earth. He saw Peter martyred. And even though John was the one that kept calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he had a love, very loving side, he could also handle himself because if you remember, Jesus called him a son of thunder. Well, now he's going to combat this. He feels like I don't have long left and I'm writing to make sure they know the difference. Now, folks, I want you to know that Gnosticism is still around today because any belief system that denies the deity or the divinity of Jesus is a modern form of Gnostic thought. It's one of the reasons that God inspired John to write this so that we would be able to stand and combat this. Because you ask people today, what is a Christian? One radio program in Philadelphia went out on the street asking people, what is Christianity? Some of the answers. It's the American way of life or an organization or it was an ethic. One man said it was a tool used by capitalists to repress the poor. And when the interviewers tried to help people by asking, and who is Jesus Christ? The answers were just as outlandish. One said he's the pure essence of energy. One said he was a good man. Most people said, I, I really don't know. I'm just not sure. So in the opening verses that we're about to read, finally, John comes out swinging. He doesn't say, hello, I'm John. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ writing to the church. And by the way, this was probably written to the seven churches or, or the churches in the area that Revelation calls the seven churches. John comes out. It's like the bell rings. He's coming out swinging. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Several things I want you to notice quickly. First, the distinguishing element of Christianity. That. Now what does that word mean? That which from the beginning is speaking not only of Jesus Christ, but the gospel, the gospel that we have been sharing, that the word of life. Obviously, that refers to Jesus. The word refers to Jesus, but the emphasis is on life. Listen to me. Religions, philosophies don't give you life. Only Jesus does that. In the garden when man sinned, he died immediately in his spirit, followed by his soul. His mind, emotions, and will began to go away from God, and eventually they died in their body. But when you come to Jesus Christ, he said, I have come to give you what? Life. When you receive Christ, his, the Spirit of God gives you life. Your mind, emotions, and will are going to follow. Eventually, we'll get a new body. What does Christianity have that no other religion has? Life. Amen? Come on, help me out here. My word. Yes, it's got life. That was worth saying amen over. Y'all been singing it. Sing Amen. It's the distinctive element of Christianity. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with God. He's given you life, eternal life. The second thing, notice the divine embodiment. I chose these words carefully. Divine meaning God, embodiment meaning flesh. The divine embodiment of Christianity. What makes us different? Because Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and is one of us, and died as one of us, and rose again as one of us. He's the God-man, and he uses this, he gives us evidence in two ways. First of all is objective evidence. It's a personal examination. He said, we, in verse 1, we have looked upon him. Who is we? the disciples, the apostles. We've seen him. We have heard his words of life. We heard it with our own ears. We have seen him with our own eyes. We didn't have a spiritual vision. Some angel didn't come give us a tablet. We have seen him personally. And then he says, we have looked upon him. Now, theomai is the word. There's three words for see in the New Testament, S-E-E. In fact, let's use John for an example. Let's use his, his gospel. In John chapter 20, we see all three words for the word see. When the ladies told 
the disciples that the tomb was empty. Who ran to the tomb? Peter and John. And the scripture says that John saw, in other words, something hits his eyes. He saw, he saw the linen cloths lying there. You see me standing here. Just a simple word. I see that. The scripture says in John 20 that Peter saw, now that word is blepo, B-E-L-E-P-O, blepo to an object impressed itself on the eyes. Simple word for see. Peter saw theoreo, which means to behold with intelligence and perceive and scrutinize. He saw the linen claws there, but now he's thinking, what does this mean? And he's confused. He's, he's trying to figure it out. That's another word for see. And then the third word used in John 20 is used when John saw, which means to see with understanding, arao, and believed. He first saw it, Peter's scrutinizing it, and then John sees it, understands it, and believes. And he is saying right here, not only did we see Jesus, but we scrutinized him. We've heard the words of life. We know that he is God. Folks, I want to tell you, I don't have a... He, and he also says, we've also handled him or touched him with our hands, probably thinking about when Jesus put his hands out and said, you guys touch my hands. You can see the nail prints here if you want to touch me. Well, I don't have a lot of time to talk about the historicity of Jesus this morning, but I want to tell you something here. Your faith in Jesus Christ is not based on speculation. It's based on reason and proof because we not only at the beginning of the New Testament not have one, not two, not three, but four eyewitness accounts of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all coming from different personalities, but all telling the very same account. We have more manuscripts more manuscript evidence about Jesus Christ than any other historical figure in antiquity. Y'all did hear that, right? Okay, just making sure. You look bored to tears. In addition to the Bible, we have non-biblical references to the life of Jesus Christ. The Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, Pliny the Elder. We mark time. B.C., A.D. And not only that, but what about the literal millions of people whose lives have been changed because of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's objective. People that say you Christians are a bunch of neurotics that just need a crutch to hold on to. Let me tell you, there's more objective evidence about Jesus Christ than anyone else in history. Your faith is reasonable. It's based on fact. 
But there's also subjective evidence, a personal transformation. John says this life was manifested. It refers to the incarnation. God, who is the invisible God, manifested himself, made us where we could see him. He, came, he became one of us. He made himself where we could see him and we could talk to him. And he showed us his love. And John even says it was manifested to us to the point that we have seen his glory and we have believed. The question is, who is Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something. Was he just a carpenter that made it big as an evangelist? Or was he a healer whose patients never had to wait for results and never had reoccurrences of the problem? Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ was created, that he was Michael the archangel who came to earth, stripped of his angelic nature to become only a man. Our friends, the Mormons, teach that the Trinity does not exist and they deny the virgin birth of Christ. In almost every century, the person and work of Jesus Christ has been changed, twisted, and distorted. You want to know if a person really is a believer or if this religion that they're following really is Christian, you ask them, who is Jesus Christ? And if they say anything short of the second person of the Godhead, he is God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is perfectly, he's totally man and totally God. He's the one mediator between God and man. And they don't have to say it like I just said it. But if they don't have that in there, they're a faux Christian. His son is mentioned right there in verse 3. His son, Jesus Christ. Dr. Archibald Alexander of Princeton University, back when Princeton was a godly university, had been a preacher of Christ for 60 years, and he was a professor of divinity for 40 years. He was a smart dude. He died October 22nd, 1851. Some of you may have been at his funeral. <laughs> I'm just seeing if you're listening. On his deathbed, he was heard to say to a friend, all my theology is reduced to this narrow compass. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The third thing, notice the deliberate evangelism of Christianity. Verse 3, that we have seen and heard, we declare to you. In verse 2, it says that we have seen and bear witness John says, we are talking to you about what we know. Three parts of this. First of all, it's bearing witness. There's a testimony. We have seen, originally denotes the bearing of testimony to what you've seen. We know it's true. I've seen him. I'm bearing witness to you. The second thing is to be a witness. Now I'm declaring it to you in verse 2 and 3. I declare and proclaim it to you. I want you to know about it. And then we bring the word, the truth. He said in verse 4, I write these things to you. And God led him to write it so that we would have truth before us in the gospel. I want to tell you something. Salvation is clear in the scripture. It's through Jesus Christ. If somebody tells you, well, I've had a vision and a dream. If it doesn't 
line up with this, it was just indigestion. <laughs> your dreams and your visions and your word of knowledge or whatever you want to call it now and your new revelation better line up with Scripture or it's fake. It's not authentic. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of mail on this one. I can hardly wait for it to go on television. The last thing, I want you to know that you're entitled. There are some distinctive entitlements of Christianity. Blessings that come from being a Christian, from being a follower of Christ, from committing your life to Jesus. First of all, you have horizontal fellowship. You've got a family. Now, notice the Gnostics were dividing people. Oh, you have it. Sorry. You know, I love it when people say, well, I used to be like you. I know what they're talking about. They, they, they go further. I used to be a Baptist. Folks, I want, to, I want to make it real clear. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ who happens to be a member of a Southern Baptist church. Okay, I don't preach being a Baptist. We do missions, I think, the best way that's ever been devised by cooperating with other Southern Baptist churches to do missions. Yeah, we have a statement of beliefs. But when people say, well, I used to be. Now, I've met people who they're Baptist first, and hopefully they're a Christian. Look, folks, I'm pretty narrow-minded. All, you know, I don't believe Baptists are the only one going to heaven. I'm even more narrow than that. I don't even believe all Baptists are going to heaven. You've got to know Jesus Christ. But why do we have a fellowship John speaks of fellowship rather than salvation. We, that you may have fellowship with us. What, brought, what binds us together? Our salvation. The fact that we were lost and sinners. And we, no, we couldn't save ourselves. And Jesus Christ came to save us. And John is reminding that the Christian life, listen to me, was never meant to be lived by yourself. Lone Ranger Christian is an oxymoron. When a person is out there by themselves, they're a prime target for all the satanic forces around. We have fellowship one with another. Do we all agree? Heavens, no, we don't all agree. Some of you don't like the colors of this auditorium. Some of you don't like the temperature of this auditorium. Some don't like where you had to sit. Some don't like where you had to park. So what? Amen. But we all agree about Jesus, don't we? Listen, we have fellowship. Now, why is it important that you have fellowship? Because one person, you might, you might be one of those people that's easily persuaded. Maybe somebody can out-debate you or convince you about something that maybe you're not fully convinced of? And, and what, if a, what if a heretic comes in here and begins to teach something that's not true? Well, when you've got a group of people, boy, you can spot false teachers because there's enough mature believers, enough believers led by the Spirit of God that are going to say, wait a minute, that's not true. 
There's strength in numbers. That's why we have communion together. We have the Lord's Supper together. There's strength in numbers. And you need to remember that if you aren't... Now, I understand when people cannot come because of health reasons. Don't, don't take this to the, be a legalist. But some people don't come just because they don't want to. I don't get that. In fact, one of the surest signs that you're a real believer is you love God's people with their warts and all. Some of us have more warts than others, don't we? But we love them anyway. I'm so thankful to be a part of this congregation. It breaks my heart not to know every person by name. But it's not fair. You've outnumbered me way too more than my capacity. But I want you to know I still love you. I do. I want to know you. I'm grateful to be part of this fellowship. I am. Y'all shall get a vertical fellowship. You have the Heavenly Father. Listen, folks, do you realize you have a relationship with God? Some of you think God's this way off distant person or being somewhere that you're going to have to see one day. Jesus told us, you can call him dad, Abba, father. I have a father, still alive. I never call him father. I've never called him father. He is my father, but I have a relationship with him. He's my dad. In, a, in English, dad is a relational term. I mean, no, no disrespect to God. But when the scripture says that God is into our prayers, that he loves us, that he desires us, that he came to save us, that he adopts us, you have a relationship with the Father God, the creator. He knows your name. He knows, your, he knows everything about you. God gets such a bad rap from people who don't know him. We know him. Does he always do what I want him to do? No. He, he doesn't ask for my advice very often. In fact, I can't name you one time he asked for my advice. Does he know what's best? Yeah, are his ways higher than mine? Yes. Do I always understand? No. Do I like everything? No. But I trust him because I know he loves me. If you can get your mind wrapped around that, you have a vertical fellowship with God the Father. But you also have one other thing. You have internal feelings there's something that happens on the inside. Now, don't go by your feelings, but what I'm talking about is the fullness of joy, that your joy may be full. John knows that spiritual satisfaction does not come by keeping the rules or following a set of guidelines by a religion, and you can just do all the religious stuff, and you can cite all the stuff. People are so dead when they just go through rituals. They don't mean any of it. 
But when you have a relationship with God, there's a joy. I didn't say happiness. Happiness is from your circumstances. I'm not happy every day. I know that will shock you, but I'm not happy every day. Are you? Don't be, don't be lying. You're not happy every day because happiness depends on your circumstances. I don't feel good every day, but down deep, a joy and a peace that knows God loves me, even though I don't feel it, he doesn't lie. And I have feelings of joy. John's going to talk about being in fellowship with God. Have a relationship. Ted Malone had a radio program for many years. The syndicated radio program came on early in the morning. He tells a true story of an Idaho shepherd who wrote him a letter. This was before emails and instant communication. He wrote a letter, actually had to write a letter. Imagine that. He wrote Ted and he said, will you on your broadcast strike the note A? I'm a sheep herder way out here on a ranch, far away from a piano. The only comfort I have is my old violin and it's out of tune. Would you strike A so that I might get in tune? And Malone honored that request and later he got a thank you note that said, from that distant shepherd that said, thank you, now I'm in tune. The only way to be in tune with the Lord is first to realize who you are. And if there's something that you've done that you know has disappointed him or grieved the Spirit of Holy Spirit in you, we're going to get to verse 9 eventually, but it says you confess your sin, verse 7 I should say, Verse 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and put us in fellowship with him. If you've done anything that you think disappointed God this week, you're in good company. All of us in here feel that same way. God said, I knew that about you before I ever saved you. All you got to do is admit it and I'll forgive you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm here to tell you that he is the only way to be saved. It's not baptism. Don't, don't say, well, I'm a, I've always been a Christian. I was baptized as a baby. You may have been dedicated as a baby. That's all that is. They cannot bestow upon you salvation. No man on this earth can bestow on you salvation. It comes through faith. The only way to please God is through faith, Hebrews says. Faith is trust. Man, that goes against our pride, doesn't it? I can't do it on my own. I mean, I, I just have to trust? Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray for those today who need Jesus as their Savior. They've tried religion. They've tried abominations, <laughs> denominations. They've tried it all, but they still don't know Jesus. I pray that you will make yourself real to them today. 
And Lord, we believe your word. We thank you for the evidence that's there. I pray for those that are your children, but maybe they're out of fellowship today. Maybe they're out of tune. If they'll just come to 1 John 1, 9 and confess it to you, you'll forgive them. I lift up those who need a church. Oh, they're drifting around looking. I know this isn't a perfect place, but Lord, I pray that you'll bring people here that love you and want to be here. And if there are people that don't come because they don't want to be here, put them someplace where they belong, where they can be a part and not a lone ranger. I pray for those that need to be baptized, just like this young man this morning. First act of obedience to let people know I'm a follower of Jesus. I want the world to know. So, Lord, I ask you to speak to people's hearts. I pray that you will bring them to you. There are pastors at the front, and for about two minutes, there's going to be a music play and sing, and you may feel this tug at your heart saying that there's something you need to do, and maybe maybe you need to give your life to Christ, or South Christ is the place you want to be, or you believe God wants you to be or you need to be baptized or maybe there's just something heavy on your heart and you need one of these guys, these pastors to pray with you. Would you quietly stand and would you keep your heads bowed? Just give me a couple of minutes and we're gone. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.